Hey, I'm DeGang Gang, and I tell stories through print, audio, and most recently, video. You are listening to The Geo Show. 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 Hello and welcome to The Geo Show. I am your host and master of ceremonies, GOP. Welcome back for another interview. Today, I'm joined by a good friend of mine. Met him of course through radio broadcasting but not only in radio broadcasting he's known as a communications expert it is my good friend DeGang gang DeGang, thank you for joining us today thank you geo for having me big fan of the show i hardly recognize the person you just introduced <laughs> well anyway let's let's find out who he is so as i kind of preluded before i know you uh as I guess a fellow radio broadcaster, um, let's let's start uh, through your journey. You're, you're known for working in a ton of media. Radio's just one portion of that. What, what was your start? What got you interested in kind of working with media? That's an interesting question. I, I try to reflect on how this all started. And if I'm going to be honest with you, I am just bottom line a storyteller. I've always been a storyteller. Um, I started writing about things I cared about when I was nine years old. And regardless of what I've done over the years, it always had an element of hearing about something someone's experiencing and finding the right tools and the right platform to get that story out. An interesting uh, uh, story about how I came to Algonquin, my dad happened to be a student of Algonquin College in, in the late 70s. So the choice of Algonquin and the choice of the radio program were all, they kind of all came together. And I was like, you know what? Radio is a great platform. It's still relevant. It amplifies voices. I don't necessarily need to be the voice behind the mic, but if I can hold the mic to others, by all means, I'd love to. Seeing as you kind of have some uh, family who are Algonquin alumni, what was the program that uh, he came from? My dad, interestingly enough, uh, was a chemical engineer. So he did the chemical engineering program. Uh, and then when he went back to Africa, that found that took him to actually working in a lab where he was doing research on sickle cell anemia. So he put that to good use. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. So let's let's talk a bit about uh, you mentioned storytelling. Uh, what kind of inspired you with that? People that you looked up to that kind of help push you towards that role? As a matter of fact, I do. Uh, let's just call her Pat. Uh, Pat is a mentor and sort of a mother figure that has always been a part of my story. Uh, she's 98 years old right now. And uh, she read one of the things that I wrote when I was nine years old and uh, she was interested. And she asked me to, you know, write a bit more and, you know, get, um, she asked me to do a little bit more writing. Uh, I got into some essay contests. I got, you know, a few prizes here and there, but her realizing that I was a great sort of medium to sort of channel other people's experiences was what got me going. And uh, I've always been an empath. I've always been, uh, I like to I like to think, easy to talk to, very approachable. And somehow in the course of the work that you do over time, 
once people start to share and open up around you, you kind of feel that moral obligation to find uh, sort of a way to channel that in some way or form. And uh, that's by extension where stories come from. So what what did you originally start writing about? What were your uh, kind of first stories? So there's a funny backstory to that as well. When I was a kid, definitely younger than six years old, I had the habit of always putting two hands over my head. Now, in African culture where I came from, that's seen as a sign of distress. So a lot of the older folks would be like, why do you always have your hands on your head? What are you thinking about? You're too young to be thinking so deeply. Uh, I seemed worried. I don't think I was worried. I just had a lot of questions. And the very first questions that came up in my mind when I was a kid was, why can't we all just get along? So I was really interested in writing about peace building, how to stop wars. Now, keep in mind, this was like mid 80s. So there was quite a bit going on around the world. There was famine in Ethiopia. And that deeply affected me. So the very first things I wrote about were interestingly enough, how to achieve world peace. And at nine, I was writing essays uh, and trying to get my essays and letters to influential people anywhere I could find them just so they could see what my ideas were. I I, I thought I could change the world. Uh, That's debatable. We're still on that. Where did those kind of extend to? Because you were writing about kind of world peace and getting rid of the famine. And you mentioned that you kind of uh, got into contests, won awards. Where did those kind of lead to? Well, so great question. So when I was nine, I actually, um, I I was in class. I was in third grade in Montreal because I spent my early childhood here in Canada. So I was in third grade. And while the teacher was teaching, I was busy writing and drawing. Uh, Caught the teacher's attention. I was asked to stay back after class. She was like, what were you doing during my class? And what I told her was, this would have been my entry if I were eligible for that peace contest that's going on. So that's where it started. And she looked at it and she was intrigued by it. And she made me stay back after school and finish what I had started. Now, I always had this very nebulous idea of what it meant to build world peace. But as I grew, I started to unpack it. It wasn't just about stopping wars because it is said that uh, peace is not the absence of war. Uh, There are a lot of conditions that make peace impossible. For instance, poverty and hunger and disease. These are all conditions that make it difficult for people to be at peace. So over the years when I was working in Africa, I worked in Nigeria. I worked in Ghana. In some instances, I was responsible for projects in 26 African countries where I was working with little organizations and basically trying to help them advance whatever causes that they were working on. Now, it wasn't peace, but when you consider all the good work that they were doing, these were all conditions that, if addressed, create the, you know, so sort of the enabling environment for peace to be possible because if there's no crime around me if there's no hunger if there's no disease if my mental health is 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 excellent then the tendency uh, to be at war with oneself and others is eliminated how many of these organizations would you say you've worked at when the time that you were doing that oh boy i did quite a bit of hopping now so 
So I'm in my mid 40s right now. So I had a good 20 years where I was working uh, in the humanitarian uh, field. Uh, I worked with uh, organizations like Save the Children, Plan International. I also worked with the United Nations at some point. So I moved around a bit. And on average, I would say that I moved around more quickly than others because my goal was this. Uh, shop around, expose myself to as many different things as I possibly can and see what I'm really genuinely interested in. I also realized that the more I could learn in a quicker amount of time, the more of a grasp I would have on what the real issues were. So I worked with quite a few organizations. I worked with a couple of universities as well. But essentially what was common to most of the roles that I was doing is in one shape or form, it was my job to get the message out, but also get the stories in and then decide who needs to hear them so they can take some form of action or the other. So that was the common thread to everything I did over 20 years. And uh, what what kind of came after that? So after you've kind of worked with these organizations, quite an admirable thing to do. What was the next step from there? Gio, if I'm going to be honest, at some point I got I, I got I burned out. Uh, at some point, it was exhausting. Uh, it was exhausting because if there's one thing I realize going from one organization to the other, one back supporting one cause or the other, is that there was a lot of fluff. There was a lot of stuff that was unnecessary. Uh, there was a lot of duplication. Uh, there was a lot of repetition. There was a lot of waste. I'll give you an example. If you've ever worked in the development field, you find out that development workers have an acronym for everything. So you go from one, from one organization to another and they're calling the same thing by a different acronym and claiming they invented it. So moving from place to place, I just realized this is the same thing. Why aren't you all talking to each other? Why are you reinventing the wheel? If there's something that works here, why don't you just pick up from where someone else left off? So there was an atmosphere where a lot of do-gooders were competing out there in the field and ultimately to the disadvantage of the people they claim to serve. So it got a little frustrating for me. And I said to myself, I want to keep being in a position where I can add value to people in need around the world. But I don't want to complicate things like I've seen in the past. So I move towards where can I find little pockets of success? Where can I find little organizations that are doing big things and haven't gotten so big that they're bureaucratic now and they've, you know, sort of are kind of repeating the same mistakes of the much larger organization. So my organization of choice, my cause of choice are the little ones that are doing big things that might be in some corner, but there's still pockets of success that need to be celebrated. Right. And what would you say was, I, I'm curious from a kind of behind the scenes perspective, what would you say is the biggest um, maybe misconception of what people think kind of go on behind the scenes at these places? Do you think there's one? I absolutely do, Gio. I think the biggest misconception is the understanding that you have the haves and you have the have-nots. Let me explain. Uh, for aid to be effective, the mindset of you don't have, I have, I'm here to save you, doesn't work. What does work 
is the recognition that it's a partnership and even those you're partnering with, even if they're at some disadvantage at that point in time, have something to offer. I had a role once where there was uh, an American-based organization that wanted to do some work in West Africa. They went out to uh, some of the stakeholders there that they tried to gain access, set up meetings, uh, propose a lot of projects, and they were not successful. The reason they were not successful is because they had that perception that the moment they showed up, you know, they would be fully embraced. And it doesn't work that way. There is a level of trust that's required. There is the recognition that everyone is dignified. That's also required. So around the world, to be able to gain access to even the poorest communities, one needs to first respect their way of life, their culture, build that trust over time, and recognize that it may not be physical capital in terms of money and equipment and aid, but even the social capital that these communities have is a very important ingredient to development happening. Now, you you were working in Africa at this time, correct? Correct. So when was kind of the transition that you decided to come to Canada to, uh, to take the, uh, and then eventually, well, I don't know if like there's a kind of in between, but you you eventually came to Canada. What was when when was that? Uh, when did you decide to to come to Canada? So that's a great question, and uh, it's a question I get asked a lot of the time, particularly by my family. Uh, why did you move to Canada? Um, I was uh, I consider myself very privileged in terms of the opportunities that I had in Africa. Now the reason I came to Canada is first and foremost the happiest times of my childhood were here in Canada. I have siblings that are Canadian, so they were they were born here in Canada. And when I was working in Africa, I was dating this, my high school sweetheart at the time, and she happened to be in Scotland and uh, wasn't exactly looking to return to Africa and said, how can we be together? And decided, you know what? You keep talking about this Canada place. If I were to go to Canada, would you join me there? So it's sort of a story of love. And I said, I absolutely would consider Canada. Canada is, I love Canada. And uh, yeah, so in 2010, she came here for a second law degree, the things we do for love. And uh, I joined her in 2015. And uh, the rest is, I want to say history, but I, it's more futuristic. That's very cool. And uh, I assume when you came around this time, that's when you uh, started in the Algonquin radio program? Well, not immediately. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do, because when I arrived, I started the Algonquin radio program in 2019. So four years after I arrived, uh, my original thinking was I wasn't quite decided. I was sort of in between for a while, but I chose the radio program because of course, there was that sentimental attachment to the college, courtesy of my dad. But then I also wanted to get sort of um, more marketable skills in terms of, you know, a sector that I wanted to remain in, specifically communications. And I thought about it and I said, you know what, I've been told I have a great radio voice. Not that that matters, but 
radio also gives me the opportunity to amplify the voices of others. And I wanted to create those networks within the radio industry. And I said, what better way than to go to for a radio program and uh, see where that takes me? Of course, uh, I, I think I got away with looking half my age, uh, as far as I know. Now, I've discussed with many people who have uh, kind of appeared on the show about uh, what was it like going into the radio program. I know for a lot of people, they were kind of comfy right at home. For a lot of people, it was a big, uh, big step, something very foreign, kind of new for them. What was it for you jumping into radio? Was it something that you felt comfortable with or was it kind of like a peek into a whole new world? Well, I'll be honest, it was intimidating uh, for the most. And here's the reason why. Uh, because I was socialized largely in a different environment, my comfort with anything tech is, let's just say I'm not exactly very, you know, nifty when it comes to technology. Now, what I found was that it took me five, um, I, I, it, it, it took me five times longer to get basic tasks done. So whether it was working on software or operating stuff in the studio, it always took me a little longer. And I would always marvel when I look across the classroom or look in the studio and see people's fingers moving so quickly, you know, some concept gets <laughs> yeah. introduced and they grasp it in seconds. And I'm like, I'm still trying to get to what this is all about. So how did that translate? Typically, it meant that you know how it is in the radio program where you get an assignment. This is the task. 30 minutes of studio time. You got to turn this in in two hours. For me, it was always down to the wire because I had to get to a certain level of comfort with the pace and just, you know, the savviness that comes with people who grew up on technology. For me, now, technology was something that was introduced much later for me in life. And even though I was um, pretty good at it, when you consider it within the African context that I came from, I was sort of like the one-eyed uh, king in the city of the blind. But when you come here and tech-wise, everyone has two eyes, <laughs> you kind of, you know, are at a disadvantage. I will say I kind of, I do relate to you because I kind of had this thought in my head when we were starting the uh I guess the production class, I kind of thought like, oh yeah, editing audio, it's going to be fine. This is going to be easy. And then once they kind of throw you into Adobe audition and then you're like throwing clips in there, it's like, it starts to get very intimidating. So I do, I do relate to that. Um, what would you say, do you, did you ever have, I know I personally had a few, but you personally had kind of a favorite kind of production piece or something that you enjoyed uh, working on? I know we've got, we had quite a variety of, uh, of assignments in that class, quite a huge amount. So do you have a favorite of any capacity? I love that question. And I think the answer is pretty obvious. Uh, audio storytelling, digital storytelling. Those were my uh, favorites and podcasting i i liked as well and here's an interesting uh a new thing that's going on right now Jill. i'm actually working on a documentary as part of my internship so i've taken the audio and i'm now doing visual stuff so everything i've learned uh with adobe audition etc i've taken it up a notch and now i'm working on adobe premiere pro and 
I actually sent out the first draft of a documentary that's going to be entered into a film festival uh, on the 11th of April, and I'm pretty sure we're going to win. So, that's fantastic. Yeah, and, and so this is, you know, I find that I do better, and I think this is a universal principle. When I, when I put myself in situations that force me to grow, um, ultimately, I mean, it's painful in the process, but ultimately, because I sit back and I look at Adobe Audition and I'm like, that's easy. I couldn't say that in September of 2019, but Premiere Pro is significantly more challenging to work with. So because I'm doing something harder, it kind of pales in comparison, you know, the struggles I had with Adobe Audition, for example. So there you are. Right. And that's, that's amazing about the documentary. Uh, any, any, uh, could you give us a little information of what it's about? Sure. I'd love to. So, um, it's a Canadian charity. I'm interning with a Canadian charity that works in Kenya and, uh, amongst their projects, one of their projects is one where they're supporting rural Kenyan girls, uh, who are in a sewing college. Now these girls make dresses, but now they're making rag dolls. And these rag dolls are making their way all around the world and helping lift these girls out of poverty. So my job is to tell that story and uh, bring that story to the world of how a rag doll is changing the lives of rural Kenyan girls in a sewing college uh, in Kenya. So I'm very excited about it. Uh, I feel very honored that I'm being asked to tell this story, and I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people. It's very powerful, lots of tear jerkers, but it ends in a celebration. That's fantastic. And will it be, uh, I'm assuming this is going to be released online as well? Yes, it will. So it's it's both. So it's not just for the film festival, which is called uh, the Grand International Film and Theater Festival Gift Fest. It's not just for the festival. It's also for basically promoting the work that this charity does and also for fundraising. We want uh, to put out uh, a documentary where people feel no for no need for further persuasion to back uh, the cause. So that's what we wanted to do. We're doing it in 15 minutes, but we're telling a very, very, very interesting story. One of the highlights, highlights, and this is a spoiler, is that these girls were actually, uh, at some point in the story, they designed eight dresses that were featured at the Paris Fashion Week in 2019. So these girls are doing amazing things. Uh, all they need is an opportunity and a bank account and i'm telling you they will run the world and i get to tell that story so i count myself truly blessed spectacular that's fantastic i'm very excited to see that and um you mentioned that was a part of your internship at the program and uh obviously as we all know i hate to talk about it but uh, last year the world kind of went into a bit of a, a lockdown and i know as as someone i kind of I kind of can't relate to this because as far as the program goes, I escaped uh, just as this thing started. So I I was uh, one of the few who didn't, uh, wasn't really involved um, with school during the pandemic. What was it like for you kind of adapting? Because you mentioned working in, in studio, uh, working with editing audio. What was it almost like? Because you carried on with the program, but from home, what was it like kind of doing it from home? It scared me, uh, Gio, if I'm going to be honest. And I did have those moments where I asked myself if it would be 
best that I just put the program on hold. Uh, the initial fear was this. What I enjoy the most about being in person and on campus is all of the help and support that I get from the professors and my peers. There are more than a handful of my peers who would sit with me and walk me through things. I don't know if you've noticed, but there were instances, if you ever saw me in any of those studios, you would usually see someone else with me, and this was typically my guide. So being at home and having to set everything up, uh, connections with the VPN, I don't remember, and, and all the, you know, tie line report, all the things that we had to configure from home. In my mind, I was like, oh, this is the, this will be the death of me now. But somehow we navigated through it. And I said to myself, you know, you have to pivot because if the world has changed and it's not just for the short term, Things are going to be done differently from this point on. So it's overcoming that that actually gave me the boldness to dare to produce a documentary remotely from my bedroom, pretty much, with people who are in many other time zones because I've interviewed people who are based in Los Angeles, people who are based in South Africa, people who are in Kenya, and some people who are here in Ottawa. I haven't had one face-to-face -face with any of these individuals, but somehow we got hours of footage and that's been strung together into a 15-minute um, about-to-be-awarded uh, documentary. Must just, just, it must feel fantastic being able to accomplish all this from your desk. It does, and I wouldn't have believed it was possible if I didn't... Um, respond to the fear with courage so the fear i'm telling you to this very day i mean i'm on it and i have these tech challenges early wee hours of the morning i'm watching so many youtube tutorials I'm, I'm i'm waking people up how do i fix this how do i fix that it's been nightmarish you know some of the time but i know ultimately at the end of the day it's well worth it and that's what keeps me going now, uh, I'm not I'm not 100% sure about this, but I believe, is this your graduating year from the program? It is my graduating, I'd like to say, weeks, because um, we graduate on the 25th, which is a couple of weeks away, and I believe we, um, we the graduation ceremony, so, so we're done with the course uh, on the 25th, and then we graduate June, so we're pretty much done. Congratulations! Round of applause. Um, now, uh, what's maybe I know? I know I was definitely scared when I had relatives and everyone I know asking me this question because I still don't know when I've even graduated from the program. What's the next step for Degang? That is the question. The next step for Degang is to keep on stepping. That's the next step. I'll be honest. I can't tell you in what direction it's going to be. But I'm going to step on with courage. I'm putting my, um, I'm expanding energy in a, in a lot of places because you, you never really, really know. All you can be is as ready for opportunities as they present themselves and be present when those opportunities pop up. So I've thought about um, perhaps opportunities outside of Canada, back in the global South Africa, maybe. I don't, I, I've, I've pretty much tried to keep it open because if there's one thing I don't want to do is I don't want to straight jacket myself. But right. in order for people to engage you, 
uh, they've got to see you. So my ultimate goal right now is to be as visible as I possibly can be and visible for the right reasons. So make sure that I have lots of world-class content that's in my back pocket and make sure that I, I, I place that content on platforms where people who might be interested in what I'm able to do, value I'm able to bring so that they get to see it. So if I, I'll take this documentary as an example, having that in hand, that allows me to go and say, hey, look what I did. Would you be interested in having something like this done for your organization? So it gives me, it's sort of like no different from a, from a demo, but you got to put your money where your mouth is because it's skills that people pay for and, and, and nothing else. All right. That, that, that is, that's uh 100% correct. Now, I guess, I guess in a way you could say the storytelling story continues. The story which, uh, continues. That is correct. You are, are you, have you ever considered publishing? I'd I, I think that this would make a nice, nice book. Ooh, I wish I had the discipline. Gio, I have thought about it. I have scribbled things down. I've come up with names for chapters, names for books. I had a blog at some, in, at, at one time. I was actually free, doing some freelance writing uh, for an online uh, magazine here in Ottawa, but I couldn't keep up. Um, I, I, I started sending in my stories further between, and, and at some point I was like, maybe someday. I mean, I would love to write. I would love to, um, you know, express myself in the print form, but I find that I lean more towards the audiovisual uh, than I do towards the print form. But you never know. I mean, I think mo what we're all trying to do at this point, and this might be your experience as well, is make a brand of ourselves. Right. And and once that brand becomes successful, then that brand can find itself in multiple different variations of you. So again, I'm not straight jacketing myself. I do want to be excellent in one thing and see if that can be transferred to other things. I mean, I think that's quite admirable of like trying to, you're, you're basically touching multimedia, like you said, communications expert. That is exactly what you are. That is fantastic. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see, like, I just see creativity brimming from you, you know, fantastic guy. And, uh, but I'd like to ask personally from, from your time from back then and even to now, what, what would you say is, is an, in, have you ever had any kind of inspirations and people that you looked up to that kind of, uh, kind of gave you, uh, help? I remember you mentioned the person at the beginning of this interview, but anybody involved with media that kind of inspired you on this uh, journey? Yes, I do. So my, the people, individuals who, <coughs> excuse me, the individuals who've inspired me, um, I, I don't get my inspiration off, um, uh, you know, people I see off TV and stuff. My, my, the most, the most inspiring people in my life are not famous, uh, but they have left endearing imprints in my heart and my mind. Um, there is a woman, her name is Rose, Rosa Molo. Rosa Molo is the very first person who saw me. I was by far an underdog really early in my uh, working career and said, I think you'd be good at this. I'm going to give you tasks in this area and that area. And I think I'm going to be proven right that you're good at this thing and good at that thing. 
she was right. She found in me, she saw in me something at the time that I was struggling to see in myself. Now that's one person, but more recently, uh, I have, uh, I had a manager, his name is Nosa. And Nosa is half Canadian, half uh, American. So he's in between Toronto and Seattle. And Nosa saw, we were working in the same country. We were both working in Ghana at the time. And Nosa said, I'd like you to join my team and do this. So what he wanted me to do was to help him uh, tell the story of the work that the found his, his organization had been doing. But that wasn't the role I was playing at the time. And he said, but I want to promise you something. The things I'm going to ask you to do are going to be very scary. And you are going to stay afraid through the entire process, but you'll thank me for it. And there are two things that he said to me that always stay at the fore of my mind. One is you have to be boundaryless. Think without boundaries when you think. And then secondly, don't think in a linear fashion. And what he meant by not thinking in a linear fashion is don't assume that the distance between two points is a straight line. And so he would say that when you're pursuing something, the path isn't always obvious. It's not always straight. There might be times that you have to take a detour, but just don't be, don't cage yourself with that linear thinking. Now, those are the two individuals, Nosa and Rose, who constantly, when I find myself in situations, I remember some of the things that they've said to me. I remember the confidence that they had in me and how each time they put me to task, they were proven right. So now I try to extend that same mindset to people who are where I was back at that time. That was very, that was very heartwarming. That's really nice to hear about those connections. It's always great to have like kind of a person that, that kind of you have to look up to, but that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Now, um, kind of, I've reached the end of my question list, but it's been, this has been fantastic. I've just, it's great to have the pleasure to talk to you. Uh, but I must ask what's, what's, uh, where can we find you? I know the movie is, uh, the documentary is coming out. Where can we find that as well? I know, I know probably my listeners would be very excited to check that out. I am very excited to check that out myself. Where can we find the gang gang? So that's a good question. Uh, last time I Googled the gang gang, I discovered I'm the only the gang gang on earth. Uh, wow. So yeah, well, eh, I mean, who names their kid the gang gang? Let's, I mean, come on, Gio. You know, so I happen to be the only person on earth with that name, but that notwithstanding, uh, I am on Facebook. Um, I'm on Instagram. I could be more on Instagram, but I am on Instagram. Um, I am the gang is my handle. Um, on Facebook, I'm the gang gang, and professionally, I'm on LinkedIn as as the gang gang as well. There are things in the works though. I, I've I've secured a domain, a platform uh, under my name, and the plan is by June. I will have uh, sort of a, my own little space uh, where there'll be lots of fun stuff uh, for, you know, people who might find the kinds of things I do interesting. Very exciting. I'm, I'm very uh, enthralled, excited to see that new site go up. That's, I always, I always love the uh, person, something I love is that when anybody makes a website for themselves, it's very personal and almost like it says it's, it's their own. So I always love that. That's cool. I've, uh, I've, I've always wanted to make one for myself, but that's on the back burner. I'm a bit lazy. You know, I, I think, I'm not sure if you can relate to this, but you kind of have that idea that I'm going to do this and then you kind of start doing it. And then it's kind of like, you know, 
Maybe I should start this instead. I know. That's the uh, same story with me. I mean, what I did was I put my money uh, on this. So I secured uh, the plans and whatnot. So it's paid for. I just have to work on the content. Um, what I'm looking to do, interestingly, is I'm trying to find sort of a matching program. So in my experience, I have discovered a lot of little organizations that are doing fantastic work that need some kind of in-kind support uh, of some nature. So we're not talking financial support. It could be some kind of technical assistance. I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say um, I find an organization that's thinking, I want a podcast and I'm based in Uganda or I'm based in Egypt and I just don't know how to go about it. What would I do in an instance like that? So my site basically is sort of like a twinning, sort of matching kind of site where I identify a need I find someone who's willing to give up their time. And if I were to fundraise, it would be fundraising to pay for that expertise that would benefit those organizations. So I see myself as a middleman, so to speak, uh, leveraging the best of both worlds, but mutual benefits for all worlds. Very, very cool. I love how with anything you do, it's all about helping people, helping people out. That's fantastic. That's why just, we're here. Just, we're kind of reaching the end. And um, usually what I like to do at the end of the podcast, I just like to get down. But like, what's what's something what I don't know if you what's the gang been watching? I know we've kind of watched uh, a lot of people have been watching or listening to a lot of uh, TV, radio podcasts. What's the gang been watching or listening to during uh, during all of this? What's your go to TV show or podcast? So for me, it's not necessarily TV or podcasts. Um, I listen to a lot of music without lyrics. And here's what I found. Now, for me, I find that everyone loves music. I mean, life without a soundtrack is meaningless. But I enjoy listening to music that allows my mind to determine what it's about. So if I wasn't on this uh episode of the podcast right now i probably would have music in the background and it wouldn't be dictating to me where what part of dreamland i'd like to travel to so that's my favorite <laughs> pastime music and i put the words uh to the song in my head where where is your source usually for this music do you uh um, I'd assume like, is there any particular artist or like, I know there's a lot of, uh, instrumental producers, but is there any particular artist that you go to that makes a specific type or? So that's a great question. So I, I usually it's, uh, some kind of, uh, playlist that I listen to. It's some kind of playlist that I listen to. I, I do love jazz. I do love the classical music. Um, but for the most part, it's a, it's a playlist. So it's nothing specific. It's no specific artist. Uh, just playlists that sort of give me the same vibe. So I let other people put the selection together for me. Nice. Very cool. Very cool. And, you know, I've kind of reached the end here, but it's been fantastic to talk to you, DeGang. You know, you're a great, enlightening individual. You know, I, I can't think of how anyone else more admirable of you always wanting to help people and getting their stories out. And I'm happy to get your story out on the show today. So it's been it's been fantastic having you. I know personally when we've met in the program, you're always a, had a bright, smiling face. And it was always great to talk to you. A wonderful individual. And thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Gio. One thing you would I would have you know, I'm horrible with compliments. 
Uh, I almost want to leave the room when people say nice things to me. And if there's anything I do for others, it's simply because I'm a product of kindness myself. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. Thank you for coming on. And thank you all for listening to this episode of The Geo Show. If you're interested in finding more episodes on the show of the show, we are on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and you can find we have our entire episode library there. If you're interested in listening to extended cuts of certain interviews, you can check out the show on Patreon and you could follow me on Twitter at P-E-T-T-I underscore G-O-G-I-O. And uh, we are on Instagram and Facebook as well under The Geo Show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for our guest again, gang, for appearing on the show today. I have been Geo. This has been The Geo Show. Thank you for listening. The Geo Show. Geo Show. The Geo Show. The Geo Show.